welcome to the Inclusive Leader Podcast. The practice of inclusive leadership enables us to tackle the complex challenges of our times. This is the space for conversations about inclusive leadership. I am your host, Jörg Schmitz, and I welcome you to this episode. When you work in the area of intercultural or cross-cultural effectiveness and communication, the name Milton Bennett is very familiar primarily because he is the originator of the developmental model of intercultural sensitivity, which underpins so many approaches in this area and has really revolutionized our understanding of building competence in this space around an understanding of developmental stages and framing those and the pathway from an ethnocentric to an ethno-relative perspective is so foundational to the work and certainly the art and science of inclusive leadership. It is with great pleasure that I introduce Milton Bennett here as part of, of our work at the Inclusive Leadership Institute and certainly also as a, a way to introduce his latest thinking um, in this space. And uh, so without much further ado, here is my conversation with, with Milton. So Milton, it's such a pleasure to, to speak to you today. I was, as I ask everyone, <laughs> just a couple of simple questions, but I really need to start with the question, what do you do? How would you describe what you do? Well, to answer that, I think it would be best for me to go back to some of my earlier educational preparation. Um, I started out as a scientist. Uh, I went to uh, Stanford to study physics uh, and did that for a couple of years. But turned out that what I was really interested in, didn't know it when I started, but <laughs> as I finished, uh, uh, what I was really interested in was the philosophy of science. And basically the question of how do we know what we know, you know, it's generally referred to as epistemology, um, The that in most physical sciences, uh, this is a well-established idea uh, that physicists, uh, particularly theoretical physicists, are well aware uh, that they are using a paradigm in Thomas Kuhn's terms, you know, to 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 approach situations, and that they are approaching them in a more sort of they would call it Newtonian or causal way, or a more Einsteinian or sort of relativist way, uh, or increasingly in a more quantum or what I would call constructivist way. Uh, and I remained. Uh, even after I left that major and shifted to creative writing, a rather dramatic change, uh, you know, I I I kept that uh, that idea and incorporated it into the uh, subsequent work I did, which was largely around, I would say, the construction of meaning. So um, the the rest of my undergraduate career, I was looking at um, uh, the psychology of perception, perceptual psychology, uh, largely cognitive psychology. Uh, then went on into uh, psycholinguistics, you know, where I was looking at the relationship of language to the construction of meaning, and then ended up in intercultural communication uh, for the PhD, which was essentially a context in which it's clear that people are creating meaning. You know, th th that's what we do as a culture, is we generate meaning that we can more or less share and we use it to negotiate, you know, how to coordinate our actions, basically. So uh, that, that seemed like a really good context in which to explore this construction of meaning. And what I started out really with the kind of traditional uh, college uh, professor teaching undergraduate and eventually uh, more and more graduate courses. And, and notably, 
something called the Intercultural Communication Workshop, which I've taught hundreds of, which is this beautiful little curriculum that takes people through a progression that I have subsequently talked about in terms of the development developmental model of intercultural sensitivity. But in some ways, it was based on this idea of taking people through a progression uh, of becoming less ethnocentric uh, and then finally becoming more ethno-relative, as I coined the term, uh, but essentially being able to construct meaning around cultural difference in a way that was more intentional and people were uh, more aware eventually more able to exercise agency in those situations. So so that's the way it started. And then I started applying that into consulting work um, in uh, largely corporations. So I've been on the executive leadership faculty of, uh, you know, Boeing uh, company and Motorola for many years, um, the Stockholm School of Economics, you know, a number of these other uh, leadership groups, that I've been very pleased to participate with since it it tended to draw the um, kind of the cream from organizations, people that they were, we used to call them high potentials, you know, the high, you know, (laughs) yes, (laughs) people the organizations saw as being their best and brightest kind of top gun, you know, uh, leadership. And they, they would bring those people in and it was a lot of fun to work with them. You know, they tend to be very motivated people, uh, very smart. And what I think makes them bright, to me, this is jumping ahead a little bit. But what I think makes them bright is that they are at least self-aware in the sense that they are aware of themselves in some kind of a context, you know, that they're acting in a context. And in some cases, self-reflexive, uh, which uh, by which I mean uh, able to use that awareness to exercise agency, to to do something in that context. And people who are seen as hypo, hypo leaders, I think, are people who at least have uh, higher potential for doing that. So anyway, I've been doing that kind of uh, consulting work in corporations and educational situations, educational organizations, increasingly these days in diversity, inclusion, and equity issues, just sort of an obvious uh, overlap between intercontextual relations in general and that particular form of that, which involves, you know, power relationships and, and equity issues. Uh, it's not a big jump, you know, to really see how this constructivism that we're talking about in general applies to that situation. And having straddled many of these worlds myself, I'm, I'm just struck by your description of this as an epistemological journey in a sense, right? The, and so, so the DMIS is, is, is actually taking people on an epistemological discovery. I believe it is. Uh, I didn't start out that way. I started out with it as a perceptual development, you know, sort of more or less following Piaget and saying, you know, well, hey, what what we do, what all human beings do is they start out with kind of vague categories for things and they develop more and more finer discriminations, basically, uh, about how this is different than that. And that when you apply that to cultural issues, you know, you become more interculturally sensitive, as I, as I use the term. But then increasingly, as I kind of consolidated that with the earlier work in paradigmatology, you know, the Thomas Putin stuff, I realized exactly what you're saying. You know, I mean, that was kind of like a surprise to me too, but I mapped the, the, that, those epistemological positions and said, wow, exactly these earlier sort of denial and defense and even minimization positions are essentially positivist, you know, Newtonian. And that as you make that big shift into ethno-relativism, it's really a shift into relativism. 
uh, into cultural, the original sort of Boaz, Mead, Rutherford, uh, sort of uh, cultural relativism, cultural relativity, they called it. But then that only takes you through essentially the acceptance part. But then if you really want to do something with that, you need to shift into this more constructivist view, I think. Yeah. I mean, earlier we, we talked a little bit about this. It's really a work of consciousness development. Uh, yes. I, increasingly, um, I'm defining the end state, which I originally called integration, which I still think is an appropriate term. But in many ways, it's kind of confused by the idea of social integration or psychological integration. What I meant it to mean, however, is essentially consciousness integration, the integration of this ability, this inter this perceptual constructivism into your everyday thinking about things, you know, the way in which you are conscious, which I think means that you are conscious in a more consistently self-reflexive way, uh, or in this case, around intercultural issues. But I think the same principle probably applies to any issue. I mean, I'm I'm so intrigued also because you've taken that work to the next level recently. Most people will be familiar, and I mean, you know, it's it's not a not a not an accident that you're an icon in the intercultural field, and you've done some really groundbreaking work in so many ways and created a very different paradigm that's widely used in in diversity and obviously the intercultural field. But you've also added a dimension to your work recently. And I'm just curious if you want to touch on that a little. It has to do with what's called the unit of analysis. And uh, unit of analysis is pretty simply, you know, what you're paying attention to. And in most leadership areas, particularly, but you can say in social science in general, the unit of analysis tends to be the individual. And this is more true in Western societies than it is in uh, Asian societies or African societies that are a little more collectivist uh, as a generalization and uh, are more likely to, to have some attention to groups as the unit of analysis. But uh, for the most part in Western uh, business psychology, and it is typically psychology, uh, the unit of analysis is the individual. And in organizations are seen as collections of individuals. If you want to measure that, you need to average those individuals, and then you have a measurement of the organization. And almost all measures that are used in organizations use that strategy. They average individuals, and they say, okay, that's the organization. But we know that's not true. We know that organizations are either more or less than the sum of the parts, you know, depending on the synergy in the organization. So I started out with the question, how would we apply the DMIS, this developmental model, how would we apply that at an organizational level in a way other than just averaging individual responses to some instrument? And uh, I started working on that for, I don't know, a couple of years <laughs> and said, no, that's not really the best question. The best question is not how does the organization uh, exercise competence? It's how is the individual relating to the organization in terms of something that we might call intercultural competence or or any other kind of competence, but say intercultural competence, which I'm focusing on. And it's it's in the interface between the individual and the organization, the relationship that the competence emerges. And thus the unit of analysis needs to be the relationship. 
But the problem is we don't have any method. We don't have any measurement methodology for measuring relationship as the analysis. So the real uh, innovation in this tool, I think, this instrument that uh, that I developed is to develop a strategy uh, for, for making individual organizational interaction in the unit of analysis. I call it quantum measurement, you know, for good reason, because, you know, it's basically saying the event is a function of an interaction between the observer and the observed. And that, and the observer and observed can be anything, but let's call it the individual in the organization. One is the observer, the other is the observed. And what we're looking at is the construction of an event that's occurring in the interaction of those two entities. That's the underlying philosophy of this um, measurement. And yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm really excited about it too. I think it's uh, it, it's going in a, in a direction we need to be going. And it's so interesting. I mean, I'm, I'm just, just stitching a couple of conversations together with even lately after this, in this post-COVID world of hybrid connectivity, and 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 what what does organization mean in this context right what what and 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 the struggle people have even or organizations seem to have to actually recreate a level of affinity or connectedness between the individual and the organization and and how do we cultivate that what what is the organization actually that's a great question it really is uh, and you know years ago edgar shine uh i think posed a good direction for us to be uh, considering here which is that and let me say parenthetically that this was also shared by uh, edward t hall in intercultural communication in the science language you know one of the reasons that i like intercultural communication because it uses this same principle that i'm about to get to which is that organizations are coordinating mechanisms, that they're not things, they are coordinating systems. And that, uh, as you say, in the post-COVID uh, condition that we're in, that has suddenly become a lot clearer than it was before. That in the, in the previous situation, people could kind of pretend that the organization was an entity. It had a physical location. You know, it had a set of, you know, policies and procedures, no, no, no. Uh, and you would go there and, you know, it's sort of like have contact with that thing. But now there is no place, you know, it still is a set of policies and procedures, but those policies and procedures have necessarily become more flexible, more um, oriented towards trying to incorporate uh, a wider variety of, uh, of activities and frequently remote uh, activities. That are being that are occurring virtually and remotely, uh, and so I think it's becoming clear to people in a way that they really don't know what to do with. <laughs> you know, it's becoming clear to people that this is not a thing; it's a, it's a coordinating system. And and it's interesting that the act of co-creating or co-constructing is actually becoming much more a conscious act. I mean, not everyone, not by everyone, not everywhere, but but almost. You have to develop a certain level of consciousness that it is a created, co-created phenomenon. Absolutely. And this is exactly the same mechanism that Edward T. Hall said is going on in culture in general. That culture is a coordinating, we're coordinating meaning and action amongst a group of people, typically through there's some kind of a shared narrative and some kind of a shared purpose and people coordinate you know, and it is shared. And frequently that is then expressed in a shared language. So culture is really writ large, you know, sometimes writ small, similar to an organization as a, of any organization as a coordinating system. And thus the, the energy of that system 
is in exactly the interaction of the individuals as it is in a culture or in a society. It's not that there is a society. It's in the interaction of the individual and the group. And in the U.S. right now, just to use that as an example, that is also becoming painfully clear. That the so-called system that everybody was depending on, you know, to kind of control for, you know, insane behavior uh, turns out to not be a thing that can control anything. It turns out to be, a, you know, an emergent quality of this interaction. And when the interaction gets insane, the emergent quality starts looking more and more strange. Yeah. So it's it's interesting how I think your definition of focusing on this quantum reality or this quantum phenomenon is so timely in, in so many ways and linking it to leadership. And, and you know, to me, that's the essence of inclusive leadership as well, because when, when I think about it and, and sometimes it, we use different language for different things, but inclusive leadership is really, you know, understanding the social context and the, the, the constructed context, the element of construction and using it, <laughs> you know, in the spirit of creating inclusiveness in a sense you know, between different individuals within a group, within an organization. At least that's one way, perhaps, of, of looking at it. But I'm more struck by this. I mean, <laughs> uh, after all these these years of spending your energies in this, why? I mean, why why do you why do you focus on that? I mean, and, and we, we I feel we've come full circle a little bit to the to your physics. Um you know, initial uh, motivation of physics, which has probably something to do with understanding the true nature of things. Uh, I would be a little cautious in using the word true, uh, but yes. certainly the nature of things. Yeah. And not so much the nature of things, but the nature of our relationship uh, with a construction of reality. Uh, it's hard. We don't have good language. I mean, this is a nice example of, you know, of course, the easiest way to say that is, you know, well, what's the true nature of things or uh, being able to see how things really are. But once you are operating with the idea that things really are pretty much a function of the way we're relating to them, then we need to come up with some language that that into account in the way we talk about it. And, and, I, and I don't think any of us really have that language down. I mean, certainly I don't, and, and, and I, I don't see others as having it. But this goes to the question of, that you're asking, which is, this is why we're doing this, that we are in a, a position that we as human beings have never been in before. We have constructed a reality that has never existed before. And we know, you know, what there are some good things about that, which is you know, a, a higher level of uh, well-being than probably has ever existed uh, in the in the world before, following Pinker and others who have commented on that, uh, as well as the other side of that, which is the danger of exterminating ourselves, you know, with the climate uh, destruction, uh, not to mention, you know, the, the nuclear annihilation, which has been around with us uh, for some time. So the issue that has changed is where we look for direction, where we look for solutions to problems. Uh, and as we discussed earlier, if we look to solutions that have been around before, those solutions may have been effective in a previous form of reality, but that form of reality is no longer the operant uh, form of, of reality. 
this is particularly clear in the intercultural area, which is one of the reasons why I like intercultural communication. We have never before lived in multicultural societies in this in the way that we we currently construe that meaning you know including people you know deriving value from the diversity you know being able to generate a kind of everyday action uh across cultural systems that are maintaining their integrity you know so it's not like we're in the process of the melting pot or anything it's that we are accepting the uh equal validity of a wide variety of worldviews and saying how do we coordinate that i would use the term meta coordinate you know each of those little worldviews are essentially coordinations of a of a group of people then the role of a multicultural society remember it's an organizing system the, the role of the organizing system is to meta-coordinate, is to coordinate across coordinating systems, right? And this this goes back to some of the early, uh, you know, cybernetics of cybernetics, you know, I mean, see Margaret Mead and, you know, Gregory Bateson and others were talking about this, you know, back in the 40s. Uh, but of course, nobody understood what they were saying. Nobody understood it. Yes, <laughs> and it was referring to a condition that did, wasn't all that common then. But now, as you said, it's pretty common. You know, we, you know, post-pandemic, you know, it's like look around. You know, it's pretty easy to see that this is the need is for something that we might call this uh, meta coordination. So that's why. In fact, the IT industry does it all the time. In in a sense. Increasingly, all of these platforms, all of the, this, all of the platform methodology is a coordinate, meta coordination kind of uh, kind of uh, methodology, exactly. And, and so we're we're moving into that. We don't really understand it very well. Why I do this is to address what I think is this emerging need for us to be able to think about these things in a, in a paradigmatically different way, you know, to get out of even the relativist idea, which is, oh, well, there's that worldview and this worldview is not bad or good. It's just different. You know, this is inadequate. This is not a coordinating system. This is simply a recognition of those contexts. Well, that's good. But then what do you do when people are living side by side? You, and you can't just say it's not bad or good. It's just different when you have to coordinate towards a common goal. And too often what we do is we retreat to what we used to do, you know, which is, you know, convert them to be like you. That's clearly a winning strategy. <laughs> yeah, this is imperialism, colonialism, you know, this since the melting pot. Uh, or, unfortunately, we retreat even further and say, well, kill them. At least get rid of them. But if they won't go away, well, what are you going to do? You know, and I mean, this is so literally primitive in the sense that it to our primate past it goes to the idea that we are monkeys in a troop and we've got a patriarchal alpha monkey that is you know sort of running the show and we've got a bunch of beta monkeys that are you know kowtowing to the alpha monkey and we're fighting off the other troops you know and killing them this is ingrained i think in our human species you know we must have lived for a couple hundred thousand years like that and so it's not surprising that we easily retreat to that you know, it doesn't take much. You know, you get a moderately charismatic leader uh, who comes along. And <laughs> one of the things, one of the things I've studied over the years, precisely for this reason, is cults, cult, culting. I call it culting process, and I think it's, it's extremely describable. And I've, I've, I have some other podcasts floating around and, and some articles on this. Uh, it's extremely. Uh, describable to say, here's how 
if you want to get people to suppress their consciousness, if you want people to suppress their self, any ability to be even self-aware, never mind self-reflexive, here's how you do it. And uh, most people who run cults uh, know how to do that and have, and I, you know, it's been clear from, you know, the, the Moonies and Jonestown and, you know, Branch Davidians. And I mean, you can name a thousand of these groups. What we didn't know until recently is how easily that could be propagated through social media. Other, uh, another form of interconnectedness that we're currently uh, experiencing. So that essentially you're seeing mass culting events that are occurring. You know, this is where the most of this conspiracy theory business uh, is, is around the idea of mass culting. That is really scary stuff. But to me, it represents a kind of retreat back to this more primitive, literally primitive condition where we're looking for the alpha leader to be telling us what to do. As Julian James says, we, to, we want to hear the voices of the gods. You know, we want them to tell us, we want them to tell us what to do. And we're not yet self-reliant enough. Uh, we're not resilient. Maybe I, I'm not sure the word resilient is the best term here, but we don't yet have the integrated agency in our interaction with the world to resist that. Coming back to that integration phase, right? <laughs> in a certain sense, right? That's the answer to why I'm doing this is that I think that we need this new form of consciousness to counteract are literally primitive. And it's not just rationality. I mean, you know, it's a, just as I said that, I said, oh, well, some people are going to hear, you know, if they've studied any history at all, they're going to they're going to say, oh, well, you know, that's the enlightenment. You know, I mean, that that's just the scientific revolution. And, you know, but it's not rationality that we're talking about, which was that original idea. It's not that rationality is counteracting emotionality in any kind of dichotomous way. It's that we are being, we are needing to be conscious of ourselves in a self-reflexive way, meaning that we conscious in a way that includes being able to generate new meaning. Yeah, and, and generate moral meaning too. Well, yeah, that's the, unfortunately, that's a really lagging uh, area as, as, as people have said, of course, for a long time, you know, technology is well out ahead of moral or ethical development. But I, I think the issue is probably deeper than that, which is that while we sometimes recognize the need to be constructing new meaning, to be exercising agency, that when that falls into the category of exercising agency around ethical issues, we then go back again to a kind of universalism, you know, kind of say, well, there's a kind of ethics. Where did they come from? Well, I don't know, come from God, I guess. You know, that there's, there's ethical positions that apply to everybody, whether they know it or not. You know, these things apply to them. And that can be used, you know, for sort of missionary purposes, but, you know, it can be used for human rights purposes. It's the same thing, you know, is that people going around the world saying, you may not know it, but you have this right. But if those people, whoever they are, are not constructing the world in such a way that that, that that is operating that way, then it doesn't make any sense minimally. And in that way, it ends up being a kind of form of ethical colonialism, you know, where we go around saying, here's an ethical system that we think applies to everybody, and we have the power to impose that, so we're going to do that. Uh, yeah. So how do, how do we deal with that? I think that you're, you're right. That is the real cutting edge uh, question.
Well, that's what I what excites me also about really dedicating more energies into this this idea of what kind of leader do we need to to actually work in that world, right? And with those insights that you so elegantly put together. So since we're coming to the end of <laughs> of our time, for you, I mean, I always ask this question about when you look back, when you reflect on everything that you've learned, what are some key actionable insights? And I almost hesitate to put it in those terms because, I mean, there is this real, you know, sometimes the action is not what we sometimes believe actions to be. Right. I mean, and and there is a, you know, and obviously, especially in business, people want actionability and, you know, lists of to-dos or whatnot. And and I don't think in this space it is that simple. And yet we we do need to, you know, work on something and we we need starting points for that. Well, let me let me try to engage that a little bit. Although I totally agree with you that that we tend to see action in a, a kind of simple way, you know, it's essentially a Newtonian way, you know, which is uh, there is a cause and there is an effect, and uh, you need and, and if you're not the cause, something else is going to be the cause of the effect, and therefore you should try to cause things to happen. This makes an epistemological assumption that there are that there is a set reality which you know you can exercise energy on in some way that will push it in one direction or, or another physicists no longer think that way at all the current thinking uh not only in physics but in the constructivist application of physics in in, in social science is that we are engaging with events in a way that are that are generating conditions. Uh, Carlo Rovelli, uh, who is a currently popular um, physics writer, writes about quantum, uh, the application of, of quantum thinking to uh, everyday situations very, very um, articulately. And he himself is, is quite an accomplished uh, quantum physicist, says this. He says, the future is rushing towards us as a cloud of possibilities which will become actualities depending on how we relate to them, how we relate to them. So there's two, we, at every instant, we're surrounded with the possibilities of things essentially being any way. And because we typically relate to things in the same way that we've related to them before, things continue to be, to emerge more or less in you know ways that were familiar from the past, no matter how inappropriate that might be to the new conditions that we're in. So we're relating to events in the one sense by creating new conditions. And this is true for our organizational realities and for our social realities in general. So we relate to events such as to create those new conditions. And yet when we try to, to coordinate those systems, we go back to the previous uh, way of relating to the events, which turn out to not be adequate to coordinate. And so then we try to bring to to explore different kind of causal approaches and 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 it doesn't work. So my advice is really simply be conscious. Let, let me let me put this into a a little more of an anecdotal form. One of the pieces of work I've done over the years is to work with teachers uh in both higher education but also in uh, secondary education situations. And I'm trying to help the teachers to work in multicultural classrooms, increasingly uh, the situation to make use of, of, of the, those cultural differences. And the teachers rather commonly will say, what can we do 
And what they mean is what exercise can we do with the students? You know, we have to have a curriculum. What can we write down? What can we do with these students the next day? And my response increasingly has been, well, I I understand that that's an important thing for you to be doing, but don't do it prematurely. That before you decide what to do, you need to be a particular way. You need to develop a sense of the situation and of your intention in the situation in a way that generates some some coherence, you know, a kind of coherent intentionality, I would call it, in that situation. And then you can't just sit back and say, well, I have coherent intentionality, you know, <laughs> you know, think money and the, and the money will come. I mean, it's not a, a stupid thing like that. It's more that once you have this more coherent intentionality and that you're aware of that, then you can start developing exercises that, in fact, are going to make a difference for people. They're not just something off the shelf or, oh, let's do this because of, you know, it's, you know, we need to get it. We need to do something active now. Uh, or let's do this because, you know, something, it seems to deal with cultural difference. And so, yeah, let's do that. You know, let's, let's talk about Hofstede as, you know, power distance, you know, or, you know, just because it seems to be about culture. It isn't really, but, you know, it seems to be about culture. So why don't we do that? You know, and then we can say that we've done intercultural training for our, you know, expatriate, you know, business people. But in fact, this is not coming from coherent intentionality that if we are conscious of the reality that we are in and the reality that needs to exist for us, you know, to, for us to manage this, again, to coordinate the situation that we're in, that we constantly need to have the intention of generating that new reality. That has to, the intentionality is the intentionality to generate an appropriate reality, you know, a coordination for the conditions that we're in. And that once we have that, then we can start doing stuff. But the problem is we're doing stuff before we have that and it ends up being incoherent and and or going back to previous solutions that no longer are appropriate, et cetera. Sure. And then we we look for other things to do because we're not satisfied with one. <laughs> so it's it's kind of an it's it's an issue of timing. It's like the the joke about the, the comedian. It's the joke about the comedian who's who says, you know, ask me the secret of my success. Go ahead, ask me. <laughs> What's timing. the secret of your success? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. But, but I mean, the, the, the joke negatively is illustrating that the issue here is timing. The issue is sequencing. The, it's the same as I have worked with in the developmental model is that you can't start talking to people about equity while they are ethnocentric. Equity doesn't make sense because you are not attributing equal humanity to the other. And if you don't attribute equal humanity in the sense of equal complexity to otherness, then you can't talk, then equity doesn't make sense. So the, it's a sequence issue. First, you overcome the, your ethnocentric tendencies to simplify others, and you come to the point of seeing others as being at least potentially as complex as yourself. Then you can start talking about equity. And similarly, I think in all of these uh, leadership issues, that first we develop the consciousness that allows us to a recognize the context that we're in, its mutability, um, and then to be able to imagine the alternative viable context, which is the basis of that intercultural viability indicator that we were talking about earlier, the the intentional viable context. And then we say, what do we need to do to make that happen? 
how do we need to relate to events in Rovelli's terms uh, for that to happen, not to make it happen, but to essentially allow that to happen. If we have more time, we could talk about passive volition, you know, about how you allow things to happen. But I think that will go beyond our time. That may go beyond our time. That's true. But but fascinating. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you for listening. You can sign up for more wherever you get your podcasts. Just look for the Inclusive Leader Podcast. To find out more about the Inclusive Leadership Institute, visit us at www.theinclusiveleadershipinstitute.com. Thank you.